Well, good morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and today we do have our monthly feature of the Faith and Practice segment, a segment in which you, the listener, pretty much run the program. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that you get to write in your questions utilizing the ConfessingOurHope.com website and ask Dr. Piper, the president of Greenville Seminary, pretty much any question you want. Now, when I say any question, I mean questions related to theology or practice as Christians in the world today. So that's what I mean by any question. Don't write in and ask Dr. Piper who his favorite golfer is, though I could probably tell you the answer to that question right now. But today is segment number two of Faith and Practice and we'll get to that in just a second. I do want to tell you a little bit about what's going on around Greenville Seminary, things that um, some may not be aware of. Um, We do have two classes that we run during the summer, and they are week-long intensive programs, uh, continuing education credits available for these particular programs, and we have two very good ones this summer. Dr. Shaw, our Old Testament professor, and academic dean here at the seminary is doing a week-long class on the book of Ecclesiastes. And that runs from July 29th through August 2nd. If you haven't signed up for it or want more information on it, you can simply go to our website at gpts.edu. The big banner is right there on the homepage, and you can find it pretty easily. But if you are interested, sign up. Uh, The days are running short, and we need to know if you're going to be here for it. Um, but it should be an outstanding class uh, taught again by Dr. Shaw. And my guest today, uh, Dr. Piper, is also doing a class, um, a Summer Institute class on the topic of preaching, but I'm going to let him talk a little bit more about that because I think he'd do a far better job than I uh, in uh, in explaining what that's going to be all about. There's a lot of information there, but that runs from August 5th through August 9th. So, Dr. Piper, before we get into the questions for today, uh, of which we have some very good ones from our listeners, why don't you tell everybody out there in the uh, podcast world, what is your Summer Institute topic, class, what is it all about? Thank you, Bill. It's great to be back with you. The Summer Institute was begun about 15 years ago as a continuing education uh, course, primarily for uh, ministers and church leaders number of seminary students take the course as well. And the primary objective over the years is to help improve preaching, and we do other topics from time to time. But this year we're back to preaching, and it's a course I developed a few years ago. We actually uh, listen to ahead of time or read 10 uh, well-known Reformed preachers, and this year we're going to do something a little different. We're also going to listen to them live uh, or listen to the recording in class as well. We use an evaluation form. Students are reading a little bit out of Dabney and out of Dr. Carrick's book on preaching. And then we seek to evaluate those sermons on the basis of some objective criteria and then try to apply that to our own preaching. It's always been a blessed course. We've already have at least 22 Signed up for wow. the course, 13 Great. pastors, nine of our students. We've got room for more, and so I would encourage our listeners to uh, sign up and come. It's very inexpensive. A ministry gets a three-credit, continuing education credit for the course. Great. And again, you can find out more information on that at our website at gpts.edu, um, uh, uh, who to contact, how to sign up, fees, everything. So it's all there on the website. In case I haven't mentioned it, this is broadcast 38, July 18th, 2013. And don't forget about the mobile app. We've had almost 1,000 downloads of that. It is free, available for your use. Not only does it have the podcast on it, but it also has Dr. Piper's chapel sermons, as well as our spring theology conferences um, as they're done. Um, They're up there on the app, so you can take it with you wherever you go. If you get stuck in an airport, you've got something helpful and edifying to listen to right there on your uh, mobile device. So take advantage of that uh, as you're able. So Dr. Piper, we have uh, a, a number of questions this week uh, in this faith and practice segment. This is number two that we've done. Um, a number of them are really quite good questions, I think, um, as I scan down through them. And as usual, I didn't have any input, as it were, to what we were going to 
ask. You pick these. And so um, I guess we'll just start with question one on the list here that I have in front of me, and then we'll just work our way through and see how far we get um, uh, through this list that you have, uh, have picked. Gary writes in from Greer, South Carolina. He writes in and he asks this question. Now, before I ask this question, I just want to preface this for the listeners. This this issue he's raising. I'll give it. You do that? The okay, background. very good. All right, here's the question. He writes in, a, a Christian valedictorian in Pickens County, South Carolina, recently set aside a school administration-approved graduation speech which compiled or complied with a rule to avoid any religious references. Instead, we spontaneously delivered... And yeah, no, it should be he. But I'm reading the question as it's sent in. Just FYI for all you out there, check your grammar because I'm going to read it the way you sent it. But he says, instead, he spontaneously delivered an alternative speech, thanking his parents for raising him to fear God and then offering the Lord's Prayer. The question, was he justified in deceiving and disobeying school authorities to give his Christian testimony in public? Okay, Bill and Gary, that's a, a very good question. Uh, this happened actually right here in Pickens County, South Carolina, the first uh, of June, uh, and the student whose name is Roy Costner the Fourth is a Christian, and the valedictorian at his high school. There were threats of a lawsuit if there were any Christian references at the graduation exercises. So the school board made a decision that there would be no references to God or Christianity in the speeches and each student had to submit a speech to the principal ahead of time. Uh, Roy Costner IV did that um, and as he got to the platform he then said, I first want to say that I turned in my speech to Ms. Gwynn, the principal, which she somehow seemed to approve so obviously I didn't do my job well enough. He really got started on the wrong foot. So he actually took the speech, the pre-approved speech, out of the notebook, tore it up, and out from under his, the sleeve of his robe and shirt, he pulled out a speech that he had prepared. And he begins by uh, saying, those that we look up to, they have helped carve and mold us into young adults that we are today. I'm so glad that both my parents led me to the Lord at a young age. And I think most of you will understand when I say, our Father who art in heaven, then he uh, uh, proceeded to repeat the Lord's Prayer. Well, this has created a lot of uh, discussion. Uh, was this a bold Christian stand uh, that is justifiable, or was it an uh, act of improper disobedience? Those that say it's justifiable uh, refer to Ro uh, Acts chapter 5, when the apostles are told uh, not to preach in Christ's name, and Peter, speaking for them, uh, says, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, and then they defend this as a bold act. I think Mr. Costner not only did wrong, I think he did Christianity a disservice. Um, if the government commands us to do something contrary to the word of God, we then must humbly, respectfully disobey. But it would not have been sin for Mr. Costner to have submitted to these requests. And if he thought it was, he simply should have refrained from giving the address mm -hmm. and made a public statement. I cannot give this address because I will not be allowed to testify to the most important thing in my life. I also think it was an abuse of prayer, of the Lord's Prayer, which is not a, uh, to be an act of protest. And prayers in these secular type situations are questionable anyway, but that's a question for another day. Yep, and I I, I think that's a, a very sound answer. Um, I'm willing to bet, however, that there are going to be people with differing opinions. Oh yes, on this. So you know what? Write in, write in your differing opinion. <laughs> we'll be glad to deal with it um, here on the program. All right. The next question we have comes from Nancy from Ridgewood, <clears throat> New York. Now, no comments about. As I jotted that down, I got to thinking about the fact that it was a listener from New York. But anyway, that's kind of an inside joke for those of you who don't know. Um, don't worry about it. But she writes in, and, and again, another very good question. Uh, she read an article on cessationism, and the author used 1 Corinthians 4, 6 
And Paul's admonition not to go beyond what is written as a warning against modern charismatics and or Grudem's, that's Wayne Gruden, idea of prophecy. Would you say it is an appropriate use? I'm often discussing this with my Pentecostal friends as I'm an ex-Pent, she means ex-Pentecostal, and ex-charismatic myself. Thank you for the question, Nancy. Let me just say, I did say last month that we would deal with uh, Christopher from Dayton, Tennessee's question uh, today in the podcast, but I've yet to get the book that he's asked about. I don't want to answer the question until I have reviewed the book. And so, uh, Christopher, we haven't forgotten about you, and Lord willing, we'll be able to get to that in the next podcast. The passage that uh, Nancy refers to when Paul is talking about defense of his apostolic ministry and his conduct and God being the judge of his conscience and um, in response to those things he then says now these things brethren I have figuratively replied to myself and Apollos for your sake so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. So he's truly talking about what the judgments people make about apostles and other first century gospel teachers has nothing to do with uh, the cessation of revelation which is what relates to the cessation of the um, the special uh, revelatory gifts <clears throat> the better place to go uh, for uh, references to cessation would be at the end of first corinthians 13 Paul, I believe, is talking not about the end of the age, but about the completion of the canon. Uh, after he has discussed the controversy <coughs> over the gifts, he says in verse 8, Love never fails. If there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with the childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The uh, partial here that Paul is talking about and the perfect is a comparison between the incomplete revelation in his day and the complete revelation that would go, uh, would make up the canon. And he actually takes language from uh, numbers from God's revelation to Moses to show that this is a complete and full revelation. Now compare that with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians as he is having to defend his apostolic uh, ministry. And he uh, reminds the people in Corinth against the false teachers who say he's not an apostle. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul appeals to his ability to perform these apostolic signs as proof that he was apostle. Now I ask my students when I'm teaching on this, how's that different from what the Corinthians did? We just see from earlier, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, they had uh, these same gifts themselves. Well, the difference is the apostle not only had them, he had all of them, other individuals had them in part, but second, the apostle was able to communicate the gifts to others. But only an apostle could give those gifts to other people. So with the cessation of the apostles, within the next generation, those who had received them from the apostles, the gifts would have uh, died out. They were all tied to revelation, to proof, to prove the apostolic authority and the apostolic message. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of scriptural reference, but I wouldn't use, Nancy, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Outstanding. I was sitting here thinking that I had to get credit as a student for, um, <laughs> for doing this interview or these <laughs> interviews because I'm learning, Well, frankly. it just means that you ought to do better in class. Right. Well, so I, now. I, actually took a, I, I actually took a little note. <laughs> When he mentioned that he asked the students in class, I actually jotted it down. I don't know if I'll remember that, but uh, be that as it may, um, it is curious, um, somewhat interesting dilemma for me, or maybe benefit even. Um, doing these interviews and asking these questions, I'm both the host and the student at the school, so 
Yeah, I don't know even why I said that. But anyway, moving on now. <laughs> Question number four um, is lo- is loaded with terms um, that I'm sure Dr. Pipe is going to define for us. But the question comes from David in, I think, in those parts of Pennsylvania, they say Reading, Pennsylvania, but I'm going to read it as Reading, Pennsylvania, but be that as it may, you know who you are. He writes, my friend is a beginner Molinist, yet when I confront him with the condition of man, he ignores it and doesn't deal with what the scriptures have to say about the condition of man. Are there any major obvious errors and other weak points in Molinism? Thank you, David. Uh, Molinism is named for one of the Jesuits who developed the uh, doctrine um, back after the Reformation. Uh, It's also known as middle knowledge. And the Jesuits and the modern evangelicals who try to follow follow them today say you've got three uh, areas. You've got absolute human autonomy. Uh, on the one hand, you've got absolute sovereignty on the other, and they're trying to get a middle way to make compatible uh, sovereignty and human freedom. Now, by human freedom, they mean undetermined freedom, not freedom that is determined by our nature. So Molin developed the idea of middle knowledge, that because God is omniscient, he theoretically would know Uh, every possible circumstance. And so he um, would put a person into a circumstance, not only just circumstance, but how every person would respond in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so the sovereign part is God will put a person in a circumstance where he believes that person will do what he wants him to do, but the person in that circumstance is making free decisions. Now, David already highlights, and and they use this then with respect to salvation. So uh, this is how they kind of make sovereignty and responsibility uh, compatible. That God, those that God saves, he puts in particular families and circumstances and situations where by his foreknowledge he knows that placed into that situation they would then make a, quote, decision for Christ, end of quote. Now, David alludes to the fact that that ignores the condition of man. There's no situation that God could have put someone in that that person would ever be converted because by nature, by birth, as descendants of Adam, we hate God, we're corrupt, we love sin, we'll always choose sin over grace and righteousness. So there's no foreseeable circumstance where a person would ever choose for Christ. Now, David's question is, his friend ignores that, and that's very problematic. But are there other errors or problems with middle knowledge or Molinism? Well, yes, and the whole thing is uh, what we talk about is contingent acts or acts that are completely free and undetermined. We call them accidents. You don't mean to run over the dog. Um, but a series of circumstances, and you did that. You made wrong decisions, perhaps. Maybe the dog's owner made wrong decisions or whatever. I won't say the dog made wrong decisions. But um, uh, the problem with that is is that if, in fact, God puts you in a situation where he knew what you would do, the, the act is no longer free or contingent. Hmm. God cannot control truly contingent acts according to undetermined uh, volition, acts of the will. And so Molinism really does break down in that there could be no such foreknowledge on the part of God. Once there is, the act is no longer free. It's determined. That's the problem with the Arminian interpretation of foreknowledge, which is kind of an adaptation of middle knowledge. God looked to see who would believe, and he chose those to be saved. One of the clearest biblical places, and I always go here in dealing with this whole matter of responsibility and sovereignty, is in fact the most atrocious act ever committed by men, and that is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter says in Acts 2.23, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, Luke, in writing Acts, I think one of his sub-themes is to show the relationship of sovereignty and responsibility. 
God has foreordained all that comes to pass. He's done so in such a way that every one of us, every one of our acts is a free act. Now, a free act, not undetermined, though, but determined by our nature. You cannot act according to your nature. A fish cannot breathe on the dock, and you cannot breathe underwater. The same is true with moral decisions. But notice here, there's no... If middle knowledge was the explanation of the crucifixion of Christ, you'd be saying that God looked and saw, well, if I did this, this, and this, then the people, they would, they would crucify my son. Now, God intended for his son to be crucified. Mm -hmm. He foreordained it, and foreknowledge here simply means he eternally approved of it. But on the other hand, the Bible asserts that men are responsible, they were guilty, for crucifying Christ. So the Bible teaches both of these things. Now, I'll give a little a preview and advertisement. Our conference, our spring conference in March of 2014, the second full week, the 11th through the 13th, is going to be on providence. And there'll be a number of messages dealing with providence and sin, providence and evil. I'll be giving a sermon on uh, providence and responsibility, and particularly why pray if all things mm. are controlled by God's providence. Mm. So mark your calendars now and join us here in Greenville uh, for a, a delightful time. It's interesting you mentioned the subject of prayer in this, in this context. I remember uh, when I first became a Calvinist and started to understand uh, those things, I really wrestled with this idea <clears throat> of why pray. I mean, it, I, I don't think I'm alone with that wrestling, but I did wrestle with it. And... Um, Thankfully, through the help of some friends, began to understand just how that all works out. Um, but it is mysterious in some sense, too, don't you think? This whole idea of God is divine, he's sovereign over all things, yet we have, we make decisions. We make moral choices uh, based on our nature, absolutely. Um, are there any resources, perhaps, you could offer, books maybe, that would help deal with this or flesh this out a little more i have one in mind but we'll go ahead have, and mention what you have in mind well d.a carson wrote a book divine sovereignty and human responsibility and and since this is not a video <laughs> and this is not tv <laughs> you can't see necessarily the reactions that are going on in the room um i've never read the book i've just heard that it's a very good treatment would you agree with that i've not read the book flavel's okay. mystery of providence and actually, the chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith is mm, very mm -hmm. good. Yep, yep, very good. But, uh, yeah, Carson, Flavel's Mystery of Providence, Westminster Confession of Faith, mm. and our conference. And our conference, 2014, calendar, mark it down. You'll hear more about that, I'm sure, as we go on through the year, <clears throat> almost, un almost undoubtedly. <laughs> anyway, moving on, <clears throat> question number five, very good question, um, one that I've heard even discussed amongst among us seminary students here at Greenville, um, this very question um, is one, it's a pastoral question, it's one that was raised by a pastor. Um, so Mark writes in from Upton, Massachusetts, and he gives some background, and then he <coughs> asks the question, so let me just read it. A family wants to join our fellowship from a Baptist background. They understand we are covenant, they understand we are covenant children in baptizing and that they can be part of our congregation and hold their believers-only position, which will exclude him from office but not membership. Our question to me, when our children make a profession of faith, could we have them immersed? And his question to Dr. Piper is, how to approach such a request in a pastoral manner that does not drive them away? Could we immerse as Reformed Presbyterians without violating any biblical theological tenant? Mark, thank you for the question. It's a good question. I appreciate the stance of your session. Some of our churches uh, would not receive such families. I believe we should. Samuel Miller talked about what he called the doctrine, the liberality of Presbyterianism that mm -hmm. distinguishes us from uh, the Continental Reformed churches that you have to hold all their tenants to join the church. We want a credible profession of faith and a willingness to be instructed and not to be uh, countering what they're taught, recognizing that God brings us along at different speeds. So I commend you for bringing them in, and I understand uh, from their part their question. Now, I don't 
you would not necessarily violate a biblical theological tenet to immerse. That was Calvin's position. That seems to be the position of the Westminster Confession when it says that sprinkling and pouring are preferable. The problem A is most people that want immersion have an unbiblical view of immersion and the meaning of baptism. So the first thing you've got to do is be sure that a family understands the true significance of baptism and get rid of the wrong views of why immersion. And if they have wrong views of immersion, then clearly I could not cooperate with that. Um, second, you need to be very clear, and a number of Reformed writers are not clear here, Jesus was not baptized by immersion. The pronouns used in Christ's baptism are the same pronouns used in the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. They, but in Christ's case, he went down to the water. He came up from the water. In Acts 8, Philip and the eunuch, it says, they went down into the water, the same preposition. Philip baptized him, and they came up from the water. So obviously the prepositions mean they stood in the water. And so there's no, there's no biblical evidence for immersion. They also, if they hold the view that the word bapto or baptismo means immerse, that's wrong. And so we, we cannot do it on wrong reasons. And normally then when people are correctly instructed about baptism, um, they, they'll be fine. They understand it. So it's, it's a process over a period of time. A fourth problem is the public nature. Since our churches are not designed for uh, immersion, you have to either borrow a Baptist church or go to somebody's house to the swimming pool or down to the river. Now you've got to move your whole congregation there to have, I believe, a proper mm -hmm. uh, baptism. So <clears throat> we don't want private baptisms. So those are the problems. But if the family has a proper view of baptism and they simply believe that immersion for sound or exegetical reasons uh, is required, then it would be a sessional decision. And at this point, I wouldn't commit to anything. Simply say, it's, we'll study it with you, and it'll be a sessional decision, and we'll cross that, cross that bridge when the time comes. Very good. Now, Dr. Smith in his Intro to Reform Theology class requires the students to read John Murray's book on Christian baptism. And I've read it, and for those who are listening to this, answer this question with um, interest, because it's one of those subjects that, let's face it, we, we, this has been debated for a long time, this whole issue. But I believe that if, if a Baptist brother or sister reads John Murray's book on Christian baptism with fairness with intellectual integrity, there's no possible way they can hold on to the views that are advocated on the Baptist equation. Not possible. Uh, he treats every difficult passage, all the ones that we, that us Presbyterians have had to listen to for years and years, um, he treats those difficult passages. He deals with them. He doesn't run away and hide from them. And uh, goes through a very lengthy treatment of the of the of the term that Dr. Piper mentioned, baptizo. Uh, he deals with it both from an Old Testament and New Testament context. It's a very helpful book. Um, I would strongly recommend it for those who have any questions in this area as to what was just said. Next question. Oh boy, <laughs> here we go. This one's easy. It's easy, but it's another one of those subjects that everybody, for one reason or another, this comes up in conversation. Um, but here's the question. Scott writes in from Lake City, Florida. Our church is currently debating the issue of music, contemporary versus traditional. This seems to always be a very divisive debate. The debate at our church centers around <coughs> the use of certain instrumentation, drums and guitars, or piano and organ. Can you address the issue of instrumentation in Reformed worship? Do drums and guitars assist in worship that is to be done with fear and trembling, reverence and awe? Scott, thank you for the question. I need to define some terms. Contemporary versus traditional, I don't care for either term. If I'm worshiping God this past Sunday that was as bad as contemporary as I can get, traditional implies uh, inherited traditions 
Traditions are important, but they must always be examined biblically. So let's talk about biblically regulated worship, which is what the Bible requires us to do. Now, your question really is about types of music and types of instrumentation. Mm. Uh, one of the areas of types of music that needs a great deal of work done, and that is I believe that there is a genre of music that is uh, sacred music appropriate for worship that will have certain distinguishing characteristics that will, yes, vary from culture to culture. I was just down in Brazil, and we're going to have some Brazilian listeners to this podcast. I was just down in Brazil, and they have finished translating the Psalms, and they've used some traditional, in the sense of tunes, out of the Psalters. But they've also got some excellent uh, Brazilian hymn music that is appropriate for worship. It has the blend of um, seriousness and of joy. It's very important that in music the words and the music uh, are compatible. And so there, there, there can and should be modern music, music written in various, composed in various cultures as well, but there's a general genre of music that uh, we need to be much more aware of. Bluegrass is not appropriate for worship. Jazz is not appropriate for worship. Country and Western is not appropriate for worship. Rap is not appropriate for worship. Uh, and rock is not appropriate for worship. And so we need to face up to those issues. Now next, with, with respect to musical instrumentation. Uh, since the Reformation, we have had uh, three camps. We have those that say we can use no musical instrumentation at all because that was only in the temple and temple worship was fulfilled in Christ. Uh, on the other side, there are those that say we can use any musical instruments we want to, uh, and we can use them in any way that we want to, either accompany singing or not. Uh, my position, and this I think was also the position of men like uh, Ed Clowney, is that we should not use music that's not accompaniment. In other words, musical offertories. After the call to worship, we should not be having just music during uh, the offering or during communion or something uh, like that, because uh, that gives a role to music that we do not find in the New Testament. But I think that musical instruments should be approached in terms of what we refer to as the category of circumstances of worship, not an element. If we make it an element, I believe, then the, we're wrong. But if a circumstance are those things that help us perform the elements, a, a building, microphone, seats, hymn books, bulletins, overhead, projector, PowerPoint, ever how we put hymns on the, on the screen or, or, or whatever, um, so that a musical instrument used properly helps the congregation to sing. So then we come to the point, does this musical instrument aid singing? And in that culture where I am, does it aid singing? Um, now, it's interesting that you contrasted drums and guitars with pianos and organs. Bad contrast. Um, I go for guitars and pianos and not for drums and organs. Uh, it takes, I, in my opinion, a rare organist to be able to play under congregational singing, particularly in smaller congregations. Now, in a big a building, uh, an organ, because again, you've got to have music that can be heard, but it's more important that we hear the people singing. I can barely hear my wife standing next to me singing at the place where we worship. That's problematic because of uh, the organ. And so um, a piano is a and again, you look at uh, when the Confession of Faith talks about circumstances, it's those things that are used generally in society. So choral societies don't use organs. They use pianos. Mm. They might use a string instrument, mm. uh, but something that helps carry the melody. They don't use uh, jazz instruments for the regular choral chorale pieces. They don't use drums. Uh, we don't need drums are other types of uh, instruments connected with uh, strongly syncopated music or, or, or jazz or whatever. Um, 
a piano enables us to keep the rhythm, as does a guitar, or keep and, and to sing in melody, and if one wants to, to sing in parts. Drum cannot meet the melody or, or the parts. Now, I was preaching at a church in another state, and on Sunday morning they had a very good piano player accompanied singing. Sunday night they used a guitar. So I asked the pastor a question, why? From my perspective, that could either have been a good thing or a bad thing. And the whole criterion would be on the why. If he said, well, we did it to be relevant, that's a bad answer. Mm. His answer was very good. He says, the accompanist, who's my wife and who has two busy boys, can get prepared well for one service. She cannot prepare well for two services. We have in our congregation a professional guitarist. Until we have a pianist who can play at night, we use him to accompany singing. Hmm. It worked well. In, uh, particularly in Latin countries, you will often have the guitar accompany singing. Uh, and it's doing the same thing a piano does in the West. And so uh, I, we want to keep in mind the purpose. The instrument is not to make worship relevant to the 20th century, 21st century. It's not to uh, uh, liven it up. If it's livening it up, then it's, it's replacing the worship from the heart. It's to be an instrument that enables the congregation to perform the element well. And I believe those are the types of things to keep in mind, Scott. Dr. Puebla, just uh, to summarize a little bit as I was listening. So for you, this issue really centers on what assists, I don't even know if that's the right word, um, yeah, accompanies assist. perhaps, but the central focus to worship <laughs> as far as this, the music element is concerned is that the congregation can be heard and sing together as one body, and they're not being drowned out. They're not being overwhelmed by any, whatever instrument it may be. It could even be a piano that could, it's a little more difficult to have a piano drown out people. But any instrument that overwhelms the corporate singing of the people uh, needs to be rethought. Is, is that, am I on tracking correctly there? Correct. Okay. And that the primary purpose is to help us sing, not to give a rhythm, not to make us contemporary or anything else. Okay. Very good. Next question comes in from Christopher from Dayton, Tennessee. Um, this is a lengthy um, question. I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I just I'm, I'm saying that up front because I'm going to read it, and so and I know how hard it is sometimes to track with. It's hard to track with a long type of thing, so I'm going to read this question, and um, then I'm going to. I have an uh, idea. Why don't I read it? Okay. And respond to it along the as way as you're going. Excellent idea. Fantastic. And you get me a copy of the Confession of Faith as I do that. We'll do. All right. So um, Christopher has a question about the, quote, Puritan doctrine of assurance and uh, saying that this position, assurance, is not only something difficult to earn, but that few in this life should ever expect to earn it. And he gives a quotation then from Thomas Brooks. Now, Though this full assurance is earnestly desired and highly prized, and the lack of it much lamented, and the enjoyment of it much endeavored after by all saints, it is only obtained by a few. Assurance is a mercy too good for most men's hearts. It's a crown too weighty for most men's heads. Assurance is optimum maximum, the best and greatest mercy, and therefore God will only give it to his best and dearest friends. So that's Brooks Works, Banner of Truth, Volume 2, page 335. In contrast to Calvin, who wrote, Lastly, there was another most pestilent error which not only occupied the minds of men, but was regarded as one of the principal articles of faith, of which it was impious to doubt. And that is, that believers ought to be perpetually in suspense and uncertainty as to their interest in the divine favor. By this suggestion of the devil, the power of faith was completely extinguished, the benefits of Christ purchased destroyed, and the salvation of men overthrown. For as Paul declares that faith only is Christian faith, which inspires our hearts with confidence and emboldens us to appear in the presence of God, Romans 5.2. On no other view could his doctrine in another passage be maintained, that is, that we have received the spirit of adoption, 
whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. And that's in the necessity of reforming the church by Calvin, page 136. Now, the question is, um, assuming these two are reasonable representatives of two positions, did the later reformers, Puritans, or a sect thereof adopt an unbiblical perspective on assurance, or ought the Christian who is conscientiously trying to follow Christ live unsure of God's love for him and keeping with the Puritan position. Well, uh, frankly, Christopher, I was uh, I was surprised by the quotation from uh, Brooks, and if that in fact was his uh, settled conviction, uh, it is very bad. It's not what I understand as the uh, Puritan conviction. The Puritan conviction, I believe, is that which is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. With respect to assurance, chapter 18, uh, paragraph 2, this certainty about salvation is not a bare conjectural probable persuasion grounded upon fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. The inward evidences of those graces under which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits, that we're children of God. Which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we're sealed to the day of redemption? Paragraph 3. This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he may be partaker of it. And they're just simply saying that people, all people don't have the same degree of assurance in some way to a while. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. And therefore, it's the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance, so far as it is from inclining men to looseness. So, that, I believe, is the biblical position. I think it's the Puritan position. I don't know where Brooks was coming from, but uh, his position <laughs> would be very much in line with Roman Catholic position and the current position of Arminianism. Excellent book. It's <coughs> too little book by uh, Guthrie, Scottish Puritan more or less, um, Christian's Earnest Hope. And then Joel Beakey has a very good book, Banner Truth is published on assurance, where he deals with a number of these very difficult issues. It's, it's a very useful book to get into as well. Thank you, Christopher. Yeah, and, you can, and if you need information on that one from Dr. Beakey, just contact them at uh, Reformation Heritage Books and um, search their website. I'm sure it's there. Easy to get a hold of. But uh, excellent question. Um, I did, uh, as Dr. Piper was answering and, and dealing with the question, I did look up I happen to have a copy of Brooks sitting here, and I looked it up, and it does seem that he parts departs uh, somewhat from what we would understand as the confessional understanding of the subject. So um, I read the context of this, what he called the proposition on this particular point. Ben writes in from Wichita, Kansas. Another somewhat lengthy question, but I, I, I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, do you want to treat this the same way, or do you want me to read it? I'll do it. Sounds good. Ben's questions against the backdrop of the growing popularity of pedo communion, which is giving the Lord's Supper uh, to a child as soon as it's weaned. And there's been good critiques of that. I think we discussed that in, in uh, the uh, Faith and Practice Podcast 1. And he mentions Venema's book, Children at the Lord's Table, or the book edited by uh, Waters and Duncan, Children and the Lord's Supper. And those are good resources uh, with respect to critiquing uh, pedo communion. Now, his question is about the related issue of young communion. By young communion, he wrote, I mean the practice of allowing a three, four, five, or six-year-old to come to the table based on a simple profession of faith. Many argue as long as Susie can give a three-year-old version of the gospel, and that is Jesus loves me and died for my sins, there's nothing wrong with admitting her to communicate membership, to communicate membership. 
Many churches seem to be denying hard pedo communion in favor of this more soft approach. Yet this seems to stand in contrast to the traditional view of waiting until a later age. My question then is, how would you respond to these soft pedo communists and what resources are out there to help us deal with this kind of thinking? Thank you, Ben. The, um, the issue of when a child is ready to come to the Lord's table is, is not an easy issue. I believe the traditionalist view, as I think you're talking about it, waits too long. It's often, it could be 12 or 13, and in, in, in our Dutch Reformed churches, it's often at 17 or 18. Um, we have to take each um, case as it is. But the simple profession of faith that you give us here, Jesus loves me and died for my sins, I believe is not sufficient. Now, I have no reason to think that Susie who makes this confession or my two-year-old grandchild that makes the confession is not converted. That is a credible profession uh, for their age. But coming to the Lord's table is more than a credible profession. As I mentioned last month, and you can go back and review the podcast there, there's a, an element of taking a vow that is involved in coming to the Lord's Supper. It's my or the child's making covenant with God who's made covenant with the child. To take a vow before God is a serious matter. It entails not just that I trust Jesus and love him and he died for my sins, but it, it does entail uh, to some degree uh, I am dealing with sin. I am communing with Christ in Scripture and prayer. I am profiting from the preaching. Put it in the context, the Lord's Supper is the, the visual preaching of the Word of God. If a child is not at a level yet of profiting from the preaching, we could not expect, should not expect them to profit from the Lord's Supper. So three, four, and five, it could be Edwards wrote of Phoebe, an extraordinary four-year-old who had tremendous spiritual insight, and so that would be not inappropriate. The, uh, uh, the approach that I've taken when I pastored was that when a child wanted to come to the Lord's Supper, that child, the family was taught that first the child spoke with the parents. If the parents concurred that they thought the child was ready, the child would come to me, not the parents. So you got to this first major step. Pastor, I would like to make a profession of faith and come to the Lord's table. I then would have a very nice, informal interview. Child didn't know it was an interview. Simply we talked about these things. Your Bible reading, your prayer time. Can you tell me a sin you've dealt with in your life? What does it mean to make a promise to God? What's taking place? What does your baptism mean to you? What's taking place in the Lord's Supper? Now, I'm not looking for mature theological answers, but for some grasp of these things, at which point I will either tell the parents, I think your child is ready, and so dad, bring him or her to meet with the session. They get the same kind of questions. They still have to go through that interview. Mm -hmm. But they'll get the same questions. Or I don't think your child's ready. Here are the things that I think you need to work on. So now, since then, the more I've thought about this matter of the vow taking, I'm, uh, I'm also inclined to say the child should at least have memorized the children's catechism, which can often be done by six or seven, and started into the shorter catechism. But uh, there needs to be more than simply this. And so, yeah, I like the soft, you're calling it the soft approach. I think it's just a way around the prohibition that Pato, we have. Pato communion light, yeah, perhaps. Soft, either way. Um, but I, I think that's a very wise answer. Um, and as I was listening, sitting here listening to it, I was reflecting back on when my children, um, those who don't know, uh, I have three adult children now. So this is many, many years ago. Um, when they were examined by elders in a Presbyterian church, and frankly, uh, this was all they needed. 
Um, Jesus loves me. He died for my sins. Uh, my son, in fact, was his answer was was wrong. Uh, it, it it wasn't precise. He, he his answer was God loves me and died for my sins. And he was admitted to the table, but the session had concerns and, to, and voiced them to me that his answer, while in some sense was correct, but really the bottom line is Jesus Christ died on the cross, not God. And I think everybody knows what I mean by that. Um, and so he needs to understand that the second person in the Trinity, God the Son, came, took on flesh, died on the cross, but they still admitted him to the table. I mean, to me that was, at the time I was fine with that because I wanted him to be at the table, right? But reflecting on it, it was probably not wise at that point. He didn't have a basic grasp of that essential issue, um, which memorizing the children's catechism helps alleviate some of that stuff. And I think this issue with the vow is really remarkable. I never really thought about it in that sense, because it's not just God covenanting with us. We are then turning around and saying, not only will you be my God, but I will be your people. Right. And that takes an understanding of what that means. Um, and, and I think wisely, Dr. Piper also said that we're not looking for theological. Uh, our children aren't passing a theological exam, right? Not, I mean, I get right, asked, even adults. I mean, some sessions have raised the bar so high that nobody can get to the table. Right. I mean, the, the questions I'll get in a Dr. Piper the, theology class and the answers he expects from me are far and away different in a sense. The depth of the answer, the substance of the answer, the support of the answer, then we would ask an average 8-year-old, 12-year-old child on these matters. We'd ask the same question, but we're not looking for that kind of deep, deep understanding, substance, support, argumentation. Um, so the shorter catechism suggestion, or children's catechism suggestion, I think is outstanding. And really, parents, I mean, this, this could dovetail into all kinds of different discussions, but I think the admonition here, frankly, is really at the parents to say, hey, look, we see the value in our children feeding at the table, that, that, that living word preached, that, that, that put in front of us. And parents, it's your job to teach your children these things. That's, that's your job. And um, so utilize these, these tools, these, these resources to do that in family worship and, and whenever. Um, Deuteronomy 6, and you know, whatever you're doing, you're walking down the street, you know, who made that cloud? Who who put that sun in the sky? That kind of stuff. And um, lead your children in that direction if your desire really is to get them to the table with an understanding of what exactly is going on there. Um, let me check our time. We do have a few more minutes. If there's one question, I don't think I've given you the list of the rest of the questions. I do have one here that I think we can answer pretty quickly. Yeah, I've got 9 and 10 as well. You do. Okay. I'm thinking about number 10. Yeah. The question is simply this, and it's a good question. Um, I don't have, I didn't prepare for number 10, so I don't have the person's name in front of me. Um, so forgive me for that, but um, it won't change anything. They'll still get contacted by me regardless. But the question is, what book or portion of the Bible would you consider as of the first <coughs> importance one should teach in a basics of Christianity class to new Christians or those with a low to average Bible IQ? Well, I have been uh, pressed in the later part of my ministry to the Gospel of Mark because I think that Mark was written uh, by request of the Roman Church to him to give a summary of Peter's preaching. Mm -hmm. Mark is a, a modern book in that it's very fast-moving, hard-hitting. I compare it to a photograph album to a, a film reel and it's through the stories mark doesn't have a lot of teaching but through the stories the first half of the book reveals to us the person of christ second half of the book the work of christ and so i think it's a good book there are some uh, i don't know if john blanchard's little uh discipleship book on mark is still available um it was very useful uh, I'm sure that Evangelical Press has got some other things on uh, Mark. There's some uh, good paperback books. And then I have a book on uh, discipleship that is uh, 
goes it's an inductive Bible studies that covers all the doctrines and practices of the confession of faith and catechisms. You can it's twenty six chapters. You can go through it in a year, uh, and it was written in part well for new Christians and people new to the Reformed faith. Hmm. You can get that here through the seminary bookstore or on Amazon. Greg, it's you that wrote the question, and we thank you for it. Yes, I. Uh as he was answering the question, I looked it up because I did not want to leave that out. So we do, Greg, do appreciate He's from Paris, Illinois, and um, do appreciate you writing in that question. Well, that pretty much wraps up. We, we covered a lot of ground um, in this segment. I think we're getting a little better at this. Um, it, it, the questions are very good, um, very helpful questions, both theologically mixed and practically mixed. I think it was a good balance um, in this segment. Um, some helpful things to consider. Um, but if you have a question, and I, as I said earlier, um, anything of a theological, practical nature, uh, that, you know, that there's no limits there. Um, can't guarantee Dr. Piper will pick your question. I don't have any influence. So I just give them to him. And, uh, but we have a number still. I, I have five pages of questions in front of me, and we got through the first three pages. So we still have two more pages of questions, some lengthy, some not so lengthy, um, to deal with. But that doesn't mean you can't send your question in. So go to the ConfessingOurHope.com website. The information is right there on the front page. And there's a little form. It's simple. You put your name, address, your question, and I will not read your last name or your actual address on the air. I have enough sense, I think, not to do that. Um, but then I will contact you at the completion of the broadcast and let you know that your question was indeed read, and then you'll have the option to pick from a list of books that we do have there on the website so take advantage of this opportunity very few presidents of seminaries frankly have the time to do this kind of thing and i don't know of any they're doing it in this way um so we're very thankful for dr piper to make the time he's a very busy man i can attest to that i can tell you that very busy but every month we carve this time out an hour each month to go through this and and it's easy for me because i just read the questions i don't do any preparation dr piper has to decide what questions to answer he's got to look at the question he's got to look at the background of some of these things so he can give a good and informed answer to you the listener so take avail uh, avail yourself of this opportunity to ask these kinds of questions as you are able coming up on the broadcast uh, we have a number uh, a number of guests already lined up i'm looking at our calendar as I speak, um, next week I have Ryan McGraw scheduled on to talk about his book, Christ's Glory, Our Good. It's a little book that was written, actually, as an assignment from Dr. Tony Curto, who's the uh, uh, apologetics professor here at the seminary, to write a track uh, related to these kinds of things. And this is the genesis of that book. Um, so this should be a very interesting discussion. I have personally read through the book. It is very good. It's an outstanding treatment of the subject. The following week, in fact, Dr. Tony Curto will be on to talk about missions. It is going to be our missions week focus here at the seminary, and it will be coupled with some other things that we're doing. And so Dr. Curto, um, who is very active in missions uh, with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, will be on to talk about that. The following week, um, <coughs> there will be no program because I will be in class, in fact, the Summer Institute class. And then after that, we will have uh, Jonathan Holston to talk about the OPC General Assembly and what occurred there, some of the issues, what went on, and others. We have other things constantly going on now. Uh, the man who is scheduling guests for me is very active trying to get good guests on the program. So pay attention to the website. That's where all your information can be found. And as usual, we do thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, we've had great feedback, and we appreciate it. But if you have any questions or comments or concerns, you can always write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. And I do respond. I may not respond immediately, but I will respond in due course. And they can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, great, great point. And we do have a, a Twitter account. It's GPT Seminary. It's very simple, GPT Seminary on Twitter. And on Facebook, I don't really know how to tell you to get to it. Just search for Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and we are there. In addition to that, um, a new thing that I just added to our Facebook page uh, this week um, is the ability 
right within Facebook on our page to listen to all of our Mount Olive tape library sermons, chapel sermons, the whole nine yards, right within Facebook. You don't even have to leave. Mm. You can just listen to it right there on our page. So I added that feature in um, after some research and figuring out how to do it. But that is available to you as well. So we're everywhere, right? We're the we're the seminary that's everywhere. You know, we're on sermon audio, podcast, you name it. So use these resources. They're free. Uh, and what a great benefit. I, I, I took a trip with my wife uh, to Wilmington, North Carolina a few weeks ago, and it's a five-something-hour five hour drive and burned a bunch of lectures and sermons to listen to in five hours. Better use of my time than listening to junk all the way to Wilmington. So take advantage of these these resources. So until next week, we do thank you for listening and contributing, really. it's This is your program. This especially, this faith and practice thing that we're doing is your program. So write in, let us know um, how we're doing, and submit your questions. But until next week, we thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary.